0: eight uh, Acts chapter 8 as we uh, continue this uh, series in uh, the book of Acts uh, we will um, we will be looking at the entire chapter I won't read the entire chapter uh, but the the focus of the, the sermon will be all of Acts chapter 8 uh, and in fact I'm going to let you uh, remain seated we stood earlier. We'll sit this time. Um, Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. And Saul approved of his, that's Stephen's, execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they Heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with with this Scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. We pray, O Holy Spirit, uh, that You would so work in our hearts and minds even now that we would hear and understand and know and grasp this, Your Word. But we pray, more importantly, that You would use it to change us, to root out uh, sin in our lives and to grow us, to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. We pray all of this in His name and for His sake. Amen. You know, if you want to plant a garden... Um, if you want to plant a tree, I guess, if you want to plant flowers in your yard, uh, you have to take a perfectly good, perfectly normal, for that matter, perfectly content seed and stick it in the ground. And then it grows. Food, water, soil. And it grows into... A tomato plant. It grows into vegetables. It grows into flowers. Have you ever thought about the fact that, that in order for that to happen, the seed basically has to give up its life? It has to give up its existence for you to eat tomatoes, for you to eat squash. I mean, it's a perfectly good seed, it's, it's content just as it is it's It's happy it's fine it's not doing anything wrong but in order for you to eat squash, the seed has to die it has to become something completely different. it has to give up its own existence as a seed in order for plants to grow we could we could use that imagery and steal the church father Tertullian steal his Uh, comment about martyrs when he said the the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That as the lives of martyrs are given, the church actually grows. The church expands. Generally, martyrs are are killed. Generally, Christians were, were killed along the way, whether in the first century or the 15th or the 16th or the 21st for that matter in an effort to kill the church, and yet Tertullian rightly observed that the more people die for their faith, the more it actually causes growth. That's actually a biblical pattern. I mean, that shouldn't really surprise us because Scripture tells us over and over again that in God's economy, things aren't like the world around us tells us they should be. If you want to be first be last? The one who would gain his life must lose it? That's how life works in God's economy. And we see that actually play out here in Acts chapter 8. First, I want you to notice Stephen's death actually fulfills just what Tertullian said. That Stephen's death Means the growth of the church, Stephen was one of the seven deacons chosen way back at the beginning of Acts chapter six. Uh, he was a man full of faith, full of the spirit, full of wisdom and his the first act we have of him recorded in scripture is in chapter seven as he uh, commences this long speech, a, a sermon of sorts, in which he proclaims Christ, and that that sermon, that speech, gets him stoned to death. It gets him killed. He becomes the first uh, New Testament martyr, uh, martyr of the, the New Testament Church. Here at the beginning of chapter, at the end of chapter seven, the beginning of chapter eight, and you notice that with his death leads to the persecution of the church. The church in Jerusalem is persecuted because of Stephen's death. And you almost get this impression, verses two and three, that, that there's on the one hand there are devout men who are taking Stephen's body out and they're burying him. and at the same time, Saul, perhaps with some of his cronies, uh, this, is, this is Paul later, uh, in the New Testament, um, going around persecuting Christians, actually dragging them from their home, men, women, throwing them in prison. <clears throat> to me, it brings up that image in the line "The Witch in the Wardrobe." The movie portrays it as Aslan dies on that stone table, as just as the White w- Witch, you know, dr- drives the knife into Aslan and then turns and. And looks, I, I don't know if it was Maugham, I can't remember who it was exactly, and says, You know what to do. And they all take off to go and kill, well, to wage war against all the, the, the good talking beasts and the rest. But notice verse 4. Where did these scattered Christians go? They went to a place called Samaria. Now, I don't know what you remember about uh, Samaria. I don't know what you remember about the Samaritans. Uh, but they, by the Jews, they were considered half-breeds. Half-Jews. This is, this is a 10-century a hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. But notice... What these scattered Christians are doing. Look at verse 4. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Verse 5 Philip went to Samaria, proclaimed to them the Christ. The word used for preaching the word in verse 4 is not the same word used in verse 5, and it's not the normal word used for preaching. The normal word in the New Testament used for preaching has more to do with a herald. The guy who would run run through the streets and announce the victory uh, and and the victorious army is now following them back into the city. They've run ahead. Hey, we won. The king has routed his enemies. Our enemies are dead. We're safe. And you know that soon thereafter the army will be coming back home. That's not the verb used in verse 4. The verb used in verse 4 is actually if you took the noun gospel, if you took the noun good news and made it a verb, that's what the scattered Christians are doing. They're gospeling. They're good-newsing as they go through, uh, as they scatter and leave Jerusalem and even run off into Samaria. Samaria. You remember the Great Commission? You can, you can always do the quick quiz. Quick, what's the action verb? What's the active verb in the Great Commission? We all say go because it's at the beginning. That's not true. It's make disciples. Go is a, is a participle. It means as you're going, as you're doing your thing, as you're going about your business, as you're doing whatever you're doing, be making disciples. That's the image here. As they leave Jerusalem, as they flee for their lives, as they, as they head out into Samaria, they're gospeling as they go. They're good-newsing as they go. Does verse 4 describe Grace Covenant Church? Does verse 4 describe who we are? Okay, we're not being scattered. We're not technically being persecuted and therefore scattered because we're going to be arrested and thrown in prison, but we go different places throughout the week. Are we carrying the Gospel with us wherever we go? It was to Samaria that Philip went, that some of these other scattered Christians went. Which should echo a memory from, I don't know, several weeks ago, from Acts chapter 1, just before Jesus' ascension into heaven, he told us, You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. In other words, Stephen's death means the expansion of the kingdom of Christ now into Samaria. The fulfillment of what Christ promised, commanded back in Acts 1, verse 8, is now being brought to fruition here, at least in its early stages here in Acts chapter 8. I don't think. I think it would be too generous of us. The passage doesn't tell us one way or the other. I think it would be too generous of us to read here in chapter 8 that these scattered Christians were happy to be persecuted and scattered. I think it would be too generous of us, too too kind and gracious of us to assume that as they were running off into Samaria, as they were being scattered, they knew, they had Jesus' words echoing in there. Hey, Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, sweet, let's go do this. Right? I mean, you know what it's like to go through persecution. You know what it's like to go through difficulty. You know what it's like to go through trials. And and we don't face them with great excitement. Yes, we know God is at work in them. Yes, we know that... They're in God's hand. Yes, we know that we're not outside of God's care in those moments. Yes, we know Romans 8.28 that promises that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. But in our minds, that verse means, you know ooh, babe, things are going to get easier. Ooh, child, things will get brighter. That's how we read that verse. We read that verse to mean, this too shall pass. That's not what it meant for Stephen. What it meant for Stephen was to live okay, to die is gain. For him, to live was not Christ. To live, to die was Christ and to gain. And these Christians are being scattered, persecuted. And they're accomplishing the expansion of the kingdom into this new region, this new territory. death of Stephen has actually sparked the spread of the Gospel, the growth of the church outside of Jerusalem. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. But there's a a second death in this passage. The first, the death of Stephen, means the growth of the church. The second is this, uh, conversion, coming to faith in Christ, Christ means The death of the old man. It means dying to yourself. These believers went to Samaria. Half-breeds. Half-Jews. The products of Israel, the northern kingdom, Being destroyed, being conquered by Assyria way back in 722 BC, but it really actually goes back about 300 years before that. The point is, the Jewish people, if you're traveling, if you're a Hebrew and you're traveling and Google Maps tells you. The best route, the fastest route, is through Samaria. You choose, give me another way. Give me an alternate route. I'm not going that way. If I have to, I'll cross the river, travel north, and then cross the river again just to avoid Samaria. That's the, the hatred. That's the you, you didn't work together. You weren't at Christmas parties together. You weren't in the same supper club. You didn't, none of that kind of stuff. And yet, now that the gospel has come to these believers, Samaritans are just people who need Jesus. They don't stop, they don't hesitate, they don't, they don't see them as something completely other. They don't, they don't see race, nationality, any of those things sort of get, that get in the way that the old man that the old self sort of those barriers that we put up that man creates that man wants to maintain our good and right barriers they all fall away and so Philip is found preaching the good news of Christ to Samaritans because Philip has been made alive To Christ and by Christ. Nationality, language, color, race, none of that stuff matters anymore. Coming to Christ means the death of the old self. In fact, there's actually evidence. Look at verse 12 and 13. There's evidence. They're being treated as equals. The Samaritans. Turn from following Simon and believe Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, and they were baptized. They received the same sign that the, the converted Jews had received. Everybody that comes to faith in Christ is being baptized into Christ, they're treated as equals. For that matter, the apostles, and we didn't read this part, but the apostles catch wind of all that's going on in Samaria, and so they send Peter and John uh, over to Samaria, up into the, the region, Just I think it's just north of Jerusalem. Philip was a Hellenist. He was, he was a Greek-speaking Jewish convert. You, you find that back at the beginning of Acts 6. So you can understand him not having the same animosity towards the Samaritans that Peter and John would have had. John, back in Luke 9, wanted lightning. He wanted to call down lightning on a city in Samaria just to destroy them. Just to get rid of them. Peter and John come. And they lay hands on these converts and they... Baptize them; and they receive the same Holy Spirit that had been poured out on the, the the believers in Jerusalem back in Acts chapter two. Do you see the parallel? Basically, this is a a Pentecost for a new region of gospel growth. It's a Pentecost. For the Samaritans. Just as the the church was built and established, and the Spirit poured out on God's people to give them gifts in Jerusalem back in Acts chapter 2, the same Spirit being poured out on the Samaritans, giving them the same gifts here in Acts 8, it's their version of Pentecost. And in fact, we'll see later in Acts six, when a par- i mean, later in Acts chapter eleven, I think it is—when a parallel version happens out among the Gentiles, the Holy Spirit is poured out on Samaritans just as it was on the Jewish believers, Jewish converts, because of the gospel these Samaritans are welcomed into fellowship with these Jewish Christians. Common faith in Christ. Share a common Holy Spirit. They're now one in Christ. The old self is being put to death and the new man made alive because they've come to faith in Christ. Coming to Christ means dying to self. There's actually a negative example of this in this passage. Uh, Simon is this magician, uh, verse 9. Now, look, don't think David Copperfield sawing volunteers in half, making the pyramids disappear. It has more to do with religion uh, and claiming uh, godlike power and authority. And, and he's created some uh, followers through some sort of exercise of, of some sort of special gift, it appears. Uh, he's, he's got authority, he's got power, he's got the respect of the people. But notice verses 18 and 19. The apostles lay their hands on these believers and they receive the Holy Spirit. And then verse 18, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of, hands, of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, hey, you know what? That's pretty cool. Can I do that too? How much, how much will it cost? He starts rolling out silver. He starts unfolding his his wad of bills. What can I do to buy that power? He wants honor and credit and glory. It's really the same kind of greatness that he's already had, that the people already attributed to him. He wants more of it, but in a different kind of way. Notice how Peter responds in verse 20. May your silver perish with you. I'm hesitant to tell you what he actually said because you're always afraid children are going to pick up on words. He consigns Simon and his money to hell. He has no part in the faith with these converts. Simon hasn't changed The old Simon is still this Simon. The Simon who was great and and had this magic power, this magic authority, this claim to be some sort of godlike power. He's no different. He wants the exact same thing now. He supposedly believed and he was baptized, but he was not converted. He raised his hand. He walked an aisle. Received the sign of baptism, verse 13. He professed faith, but he didn't possess faith in Christ. The old Simon still lived. Stephen's death means that leads to the growth of the church. Coming to Christ means dying to yourself. And then lastly, the Gospel means the death of Christ. There's an Ethiopian traveling from Jerusalem back down through Gaza, down to North Africa, back down to Ethiopia. And he's reading the Bible. He's reading the Old Testament. He's reading Isaiah. He's reading Isaiah 53, which we read just a few minutes ago. But he doesn't understand it. And so... Philip comes to him and he says in verse 34, about whom is Isaiah talking? So is Isaiah, as he talks about it, he quotes, and we read it just a few minutes ago, and there's, there's the quote, that inset sort of part in your Bible means that the, the, the writer is letting you know, hey, this is Old Testament. So this person who's like a sheep led to his slaughter... This person who's humiliated—is that Isaiah or is it somebody else? Philip, help me understand what this passage is about. You know, Isaiah fifty-three. It's it's one of um, a group of servant songs that that Isaiah sings, uh, writes, um, that anticipate that the coming Messiah is not actually going to ride into Jerusalem on a white horse wearing a crown, carrying a sword. He's actually instead going to ride in on a donkey and take up a basin and a towel. He's going to serve and he's going to be humiliated and he's going to suffer and bleed and die. And so, this Ethiopian has questions. The promised Messiah is not a royal king-like person, at least not yet. That's His second coming. It's a a suffering servant. It's one who would come and, and bleed and die and bear the transgressions of many and be numbered with the transgressors as Isaiah 53 ended. You know this is why we celebrate Christmas, right? I mean, Jesus wasn't born... Himself. He he didn't need to take on flesh to somehow be made better than he was. It, It wasn't for him, it was for us. He had to take on, he had to be a man. The God man had to suffer and bleed and die and bear our sin and shame and guilt and pay the debt that that our sin deserves, and yet earned the righteousness that you and I could not. So there's the imputation of our sin, the credit of our sin to His account and His righteousness to ours. And the Ethiopian doesn't understand. I don't know who Isaiah's talking about, Philip. Can you help me? And then we're told Philip began right there and told him about Jesus. He unpacked beginning with Isaiah 53 and no doubt going many other places and explained to him the Gospel of Christ. The Gospel means Christ had to die. The Son of God had to take on flesh and become a man and suffer and bleed and die in our place. That's what our salvation demanded. The Ethiopian is converted. He believes and he's baptized. Let me just make this aside because this is just sort of part of who we are. The argument frequently goes, verse 38, He commanded the the chariot to be stopped. And they both went down to the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. The argument frequently goes, see, down into the water, he was immersed. He was dunked. That was the, the method, the mode of his baptism. Well, here's the catch. If the Ethiopian went all the way underwater, so did Philip. They went down into the water. So if you're going to read one of them fully immersed... They both have to be. And that just seems like a really awkward, cumbersome way to baptize somebody. Grab them and drag them down underwater with you. I don't think the passage is teaching the mode of baptism. But this eunuch, this Ethiopian, comes to faith in Christ. He's converted right there. Receives the sign of the covenant right there. All because he heard the Gospel proclaimed from Isaiah 53. Because he heard that Christ had died. And why? So that you and I might be saved. Stephen's death leads to the growth and expansion of the church. Coming to faith in Christ means dying to yourself. The Gospel means Christ had to die. That's the pattern of Scripture. It shouldn't surprise us that we bury a seed in the ground and it has to give up its life so that something else might come of it. Let me make four applications from this passage. First, you may endure persecution in your lifetime on account of Christ. It may be wider, broad, wide scale persecution on Christians everywhere. It might be just you at school or at work or uh, some place you frequent. I don't know. The reality is, it's entirely possible that you and I may face persecution on account of Christ. Now, Jesus promised it, He had it. His followers should expect it that doesn't make it fun that doesn't make that doesn't mean that that's something we should go looking for we shouldn't go causing trouble just so that we can then be persecuted on account of christ you don 't know what'll come of that october sixteenth fifteen fifty five hugh Latimer and nicholas Ridley were burned at the stake by bloody Mary. And it's reported that as the as the flames are sort of starting to lap up their bodies, uh, that Latimer, Hugh Latimer, turned to Nicholas Ridley and said, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall light this we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as shall never be put out. You've heard Tertullian's quote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. God may actually use our persecution. He may actually use your death to expand His kingdom. A second application. As God's children, as as men and women and boys and girls saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we must die To ourselves. Put to death the old man. By the Spirit's help in our lives, we are mortifying the flesh. We're putting to death the old sinful nature. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Him. We must decrease so that He might increase. This is our sanctification. Coming to faith in Christ means dying to self. That by His grace, we might more and more die to sin and live to righteousness. A third application. Can you open your Bible to Isaiah 53 and preach Christ? Can you? Do you know the story of Scripture well enough? Do you understand the large arc that the Bible is? One story of God's grace redeeming His people, undoing all that mankind broke in the fall. Do you understand that story well enough that you can start in various places in the Old Testament and tell people about Jesus? By the way, ladies, you want to learn more of that? Pick your Friday morning Bible study next spring. Both of them will help you with that. Finally, let me make this application. If you don't know Christ, if you've never trusted in Him for your salvation, if you're relying on your own gifts, your own good looks, your own strength, your own wisdom, your own goodness, your own merit... The Gospel says you can't. The Gospel says you have no merit of your own to offer Christ. The Gospel says you aren't good enough. The Gospel also says Christ died for you because you couldn't save yourself. Run to Him. Trust in Him alone for your salvation. By the way, that's why this table is set. You get a picture this morning that the Gospel says Christ had to die so that you and I might be delivered from sin. Let's pray. Our great God and our King, we pray that You would be at work in our hearts, our minds, our lives, that You would be Uh, rooting out sin in our lives, that the old uh, sinful self uh, would be our only shame and that our glory would be all the cross. We pray this in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen.